0: Thank you, Nick. Thank you, all of you, uh, for being here. This is a lot of fun. I love, uh, I mean, it's not every day you get to speak in a barbershop uh, that's in, like, an industrial park. So, I mean, zero foot traffic, I guess. Like, yeah, it, maybe that's everywhere in California. Um, I'm here to talk about uh, what the title of my talk is, Nobody's Somebody or Somebody's Nobody apostrophes in there. <laughs> the loneliness of significance and the hope of mundane grace. But I really want to focus in on that first part, to be nobody's somebody or to be somebody's nobody. And before I do that, I want to thank Nick and Aaron and everyone who helped make this possible. It's really fun to come out to the uh, the left coast every once in a while and see what's cooking. Um. To talk about the the subject that we we were asked to speak about tonight, ordinary, the overlooked, um, and the the distinction between, uh, or the almost shame of of that word ordinary. I think Michael Horton says it's one of the loneliest words in the English language. No one wants to be ordinary. Um, you, every everyone wants to be special, you know. Um, But it's a subject that's timely and it's timely because we all woke up this morning and heard about Anthony Bourdain and two weeks ago, uh, three days ago, I think we heard about Kate Spade. And it's just um, these extraordinary people, these people that we want to that we emulate or that we think we want to be. And you know what? Honestly, I watched all of Anthony Bourdain and I want to be that guy. Who wouldn't want to be that guy? He, like, goes around. He's got all this swagger, yet he just seems kind of secure, and he goes and eats incredible street food in Thailand one week, and then goes to Montana the next week. Everyone seems to like him. He seems to be so self-possessed. And yet, um, and every time he sneezes, he makes a new show, <laughs> and people watch it, and you'd think, you know, that guy seems to have it all. And then as I was preparing for this talk, I I sat down with a woman who has just actually fled L.A. or Hollywood, where she was a a creative executive and at the highest levels. You know, the only woman in the room, uh, as she told me, Um, and just said she had to leave because everyone was so incredibly unhappy. To be around people craving power all the time and the cutthroat ruthlessness of never knowing your neighbors and everyone vying for your job was just so so sad. And in this extraordinary place where dreams are made, that um, people being so um, despondent uh, that, you know, uh, my friend Sarah Condon today on, on Mockingbird, she wrote something about Anthony, but she really wasn't writing about him. She was saying that maybe we weren't made to be famous. Maybe if we can take the lessons of the great, the most famous people on earth, which would be, you know, it was Elvis Presley, then Michael Jackson, and then, you know, Britney Spears at one point, maybe we can start to, you know, put together a theory that the human psyche and spirit doesn't really cohere with fame. And this extraordinary, extraordinariness, with which we're surrounded and which we're all sort of climbing after. You know, I call it the cult of significance. Um, and it just is eating its own once again, just like it eats us. And this is a dark uh, opening uh, to a what I think is actually going to be kind of a light talk. Um, but I felt like I had to surface that at the beginning because um, it, it felt like what God had sort of put in my lap here. But also to surface the irony of being someone who posts stuff online and goes around and speaks and, uh, you know, has got a book deal and is chasing after significance. And here I am called to talk about it being ordinary. And I want to just let, let's just put that out there, guys. None of us are living consistently. That's a fool's errand. But I'm the chief of sinners here to talk to you about being ordinary in the venue of trying to be extraordinary so you can you can just tune me out immediately so that's over. J.D. Salinger, maybe you know from Franny and Zoe, one of the best books written in the 20th century uh, and one of the most religious books. Uh, there's the character of Franny at one point. Um, she's having a nervous breakdown and she's praying the Jesus prayer. And she's, she says this famous quote. She says, Just because I like applause and people to rave about me doesn't make it right. I'm ashamed of it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of not having the courage to be an absolute nobody. I'm sick of myself and everybody else that wants to make some kind of splash. What would she think of social media? Um... But this is the cult of significance. This is the, this is the fuel underneath uh, the veneer of, of happy lives. We actually, we're, we're so afraid of death that we want uh, our lives to have meaning. We don't want to fade away. We want to make a dent in the universe. And so we grasp at anything uh, that allows us to stand out from the pack that allows us to leave a mark. You know, Brene Brown, the the shame researcher who's made a splash of her own, uh, calls this the shame based fear of being ordinary. The shame based fear of being ordinary. It's, it's not just it's not just a fear; it's an anxiety that we all struggle with. Because to be ordinary is really it's, it's 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 got a value attached to it now. It's not just to be regular; it's to be not enough. It's like, you know, it's like grade inflation when you're a kid, you know. When I was a kid, people got C's, you know, and B's and A's. And now people only seem to get B's and C is basically a failing grade, even though it's not because no one actually fails. But it's like maybe to be ordinary at one point was to be, hey, I'm leading an ordinary life. That's good. Now we have to lead an extraordinary life and like. People who are like leading the most extraordinary lives that 's we 're inflating these terms it 's the law is what it really is. Thou shalt be enough, thou shalt be extraordinary, and thou shalt evince that in every single move you make in every single photo you post and uh, it is a lonely a lonely lonely uh uh, place to be. It's a lonely culture to live in. You know, Cigna, the, great, the medical insurance company, released a survey of 20,000 adults. Three weeks ago they released this. Gaging levels of loneliness. And according to the data, they used the UCLA Loneliness Scale. <laughs> I'm so glad that exists. <laughs> Nearly half of Americans' report sometimes are always feeling alone. Forty six percent, forty seven percent report feeling left out. Forty three percent report lacking meaningful relationships. Forty two percent report feeling isolated from others. And, you know, for the longest time, it used to be that the elderly were the loneliest. You know, you go to the elder care facilities and the old people's homes. And that's where it was really lonely. In fact, the people that reported 20,000 people, that's not that's not a small sample size that, that generation Z. Which is adult ages 18 to 22. That's the loneliest generation. That's the iPhone generation too. Um, So, but demographic breakdowns are misleading because you know, as one of the things we do on Mockingbird is we. Anytime I hear the word loneliness, I'm like, what's that? Uh, That's humanity. You know, I want to know what's going on here. Uh, I always want who's being reported as being lonely. Well, in the past year, we've heard that British pensioners are extremely lonely. I've heard reports that clergy spouses are extremely lonely. Uh, last year, uh, middle-aged men were reported as being the loneliest men of peop- a group in America. Before that, it was professional women. They were the loneliest. And now it's college students. So it would appear that everyone is getting lonelier and lonelier. And could it be that one reason that we're getting lonelier is that we insist that our relationships be extraordinary? That's the subject of my talk tonight. Relationships. We insist that our relationships to be extraordinary. What do we mean? Well, the most obvious form of that is the soulmate myth. That there's this one person out there who's meant for me, the one, and i got to find them. You know, after every date, do you think he could be the one? Do you think she's it? Um, I don't know. It makes for great drama. <laughs> it makes for awesome television. You know, it elevates quotidian uh, dating escapades into an epic quest to fulfill your destiny. (laughs) It turns our lives into movies. Humdrum days are transformed into something far more flattering and exciting. We get to star in our own personal Nicholas Sparks flick. Excuse me. Where our neuroses all magically morph into quirks. (laughs) And all sorts of shady actions become instantly justifiable, maybe even laudable. This kind of understanding of relationships is which the person that I am with is who makes me somebody. I'm but You're nobody unless somebody loves you. You know that song? And that predates the social media generation. Your relationships makes you somebody. They complete you in the line of, you know, uh, Zoe or, uh, excuse me, uh, Tom Cruise. Which not only puts a huge amount of pressure on another person to make you somebody, it turns them into a prop in your quest for self-fulfillment. They're an instrument. They're a side character. They're they're not playing the lead in the movie of your life. They're the what's called the romantic interests, right? Um, So, so when it turns out that they're just as you know. they're just as human as you. Well, then you trade them in for a better model. Were they you? See, relationships that are based completely on self-fulfillment actually are relationships that are based on self-justification. By that, I mean that someone is going to make you enough. Enough. Bring you up to a place where you are justified, where you feel valued, where you feel like you've got significance, where you can love yourself but self-justification, make no mistake, is the assassin of love. And this is one of the reasons why we're so lonely. But we've, I've talked about that at nauseum. Um, I want to talk about something slightly different. Because um, an equally popular expression of uh, self-justification in relationships comes when we seek to establish our significance at the expense of our spouse or expense of the person we're with. We try to get justify ourselves against them rather than through them. A romantic relationship becomes a prime, our venue for self-justification. What do I mean? Well, Jonathan Haidt, made it, the great moral psychologist, put it uh, so beautifully when he talked about how on February 3rd, 2007, shortly before lunch, he said, I discovered I was a chronic liar. I was at home writing a review article on moral psychology when my wife, Jane, walked by my desk. In passing, she asked me not to leave dirty dishes on the counter where she prepared our baby's food. Her request was polite, but its tone added a postscript. (laughs) As I asked you a hundred times before. My mouth started moving before hers had stopped. Words came out. Those words linked themselves up to say something about the baby having woken up, at the same time that our elderly dog barked to ask for a walk, and I'm sorry, I just put my breakfast dishes down wherever I could. In my family, caring for a hungry baby and an incontinent dog is a surefire case, so I was acquitted. (laughs) So there I was at my desk writing about how people automatically fabricate justifications for their gut feelings. When suddenly realized I had just done the same thing with my wife, I disliked being criticized and i had felt a flash of negativity by the time Jane had gotten her third word out. Can you not dot dot dot? Even before I knew why she was criticizing me, I knew I disagreed with her <laughs> because intuitions come first. The instant I knew the content of the criticism leave the dirty dishes on the, my inner lawyer went to work searching for an excuse. It's true that I had eaten breakfast, given Max his first bottle and let Andy out for a first walk. But these events had all happened at separate times. Only when my wife criticized me did I merge them into a composite image of a harried father with too few hands. And I created this fabrication by the time she had completed her one sentence criticism. I then lied so quickly and convincingly that my wife and I both believed me. (laughs) He's justifying himself against her. He's right and she's wrong. But first, it began with her saying she's right and he's wrong. And all of a sudden, you got into this tit-for-tat thing where antagonism, where love, uh, talking, was hijacked by our need to be enough. To be the one who's right, because I do not don't like the feeling when I'm wrong. I have to apologize. I have to think about myself in a non-flattering way. It punctures my my my, my, my image of myself. So antagonism is the result here of when relationships uh, get bogged down in self-justification uh, and loneliness. When when you start—if this happens enough times, then you stop talking to the other person. If there's not, you can't talk it through. I'll tell you another story. This one comes from New York Times. It's about a couple named Lynn and Chris. Lynn uh, talks about her pre-parenthood agreement with her husband, Chris. He had really pushed to have the children. And so they decided to split the child rearing duties. Get this. 85-15. <laughs> not 50-50. He would do 85% and she would do 15 with him to, uh, sounds like a recipe for resentment, you know? Uh, I'm, I'm not a therapist, but, um, and it turns out to be, but probably, maybe not in the way that we would predict. Um, she says reality played out very differently, and Lynn soon found herself taking on more and more of the child related responsibilities, certainly more than 15%. How do you gauge that number? <laughs> So the breaking point comes one evening when Chris arrives home late from work uh, on a day when she had, done, had to had, drop everything to take her son to the doctor. Um, this is what she says. This is what Lynn says. He walks in. How many bottles have you cleaned, I asked? How many shirts have you washed? How many peas have you picked up off the floor? The questions were rhetorical. I knew the answers. None, none, none. I reminded him of our 85-15 split. And yet there I was, the mother, defined not as the female parent, but as the child's administrative assistant, responsible for appointments, filing, scheduling, body maintenance, pee warming, and diaper changing. In Chris's defense, he's a very involved and active father. Every time you hear a woman say that, just, you know, it's, something's coming. Uh, more than most men I know, his intentions... As pertaining to our agreement we're pure he genuinely planned on being the lead parent he regrets every dinner he missed and every doctor's appointment he had to bail on but he was defenseless against the strategic moves that life makes and the way he feels when he looks at his worshipful little boy and thinks I have to provide so Lynn describes here what, what, I, what I've just tried to uh, you know, relay to you she described what's a, a somewhat intoxicating feeling Uh, When you get self-pity, you know, anyone who's really acquainted with self-pity knows that it's intoxicating. We like it. It feels good. Um, It can be very gratifying to feel sorry for yourself, especially in the heat of a spousal argument. But, you know, if you're not married, think about it in terms of your siblings. Think about it in terms of your own parents. Think about it in terms of the person you date or your coworkers. Percentages, tit-for-tat negotiation, that's the language of control. It's not the language of love, it's the language of control. and a standard, it's, it's, it's a form of what I always call little L law, a standard of judgment that isolates even when it's only meant to regulate and protect. But add the sundry and often unjust social pressures we feel as men and women, and you have a powder keg. I mean, love cannot simply not breathe with that much expectation in a room. Both she and Haidt, and by the way, she just ends up furious at her husband, and she doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Both she and Jonathan Haidt risk becoming, they, they, they've maintained their justification. They're in the right, or she's in the right. The, but they risk becoming nobody's someone. They're someone, but if you, if you, if you, if you, if you insist on being someone that much, you're soon going to be nobody's someone. When another person becomes the tool for your self-justification, you will become isolated. Alan de Botton, the, the, the thinker and um, school of life head, he tried to uh, rewrite wedding vows in a kind of a less romantic but more realistic way. And one of them is one of them is, you stare at your, your, your fiancé and you say, I am ready for admin. <laughs> I accept the dignity of the ironing board. I thought it was funny. Um... <laughs> So what does it look like then to be somebody's nobody? I think, I think it's, this is interesting. Over at Stanford, not that far from here, uh, Frederick Luskin teaches a course on forgiveness. Maybe you've heard about this. It's not a, it's not a religious thing, but it's a course on forgiveness. And... Um, there was an article on, in Aeon, actually, magazine about it. And uh, this uh, young woman talks about interviewing. She says, when I found him, Luskin had been running forgiveness classes at Stanford for about a decade. But it moved away from what he called big, dramatic forms of forgiveness, to which youth and media attention had drawn him early in his career. He decided to actually focus on the, the minor stuff, the ordinary stuff. Now, both of the examples I've chosen so far couldn't be more ordinary. They both have to basically do with dishes. Is that not the most? And it is isn't amazing how much emotion gets invested in dishwashing. It's funny. We talk today a lot about microaggressions, but we never talk about microabsolutions. I think that's what we need, because we're, we are we are full of microaggressions. I, I kind of hate that term, but I also love it, because it's true. People are throwing daggers at you constantly. If you're in a if you're in a love relationship, and you're dodging them, and um, uh, they hurt, the smaller ones hurt more sometimes than the bigger ones, because the small ones just stick there, and you walk around through life with them in you. So even this this is what Luskin says. Even the stuff that forgiveness was supposed to be good for, stuff like murders, Netflix. <laughs> it's so rare. More important in life is can you forgive your brother-in-law for being annoying? Can you forgive traffic? Those things happen every day. That's called ordinary forgiveness. Big things, they happen once in a lifetime, maybe twice. Forgiveness is really important for smoothing over the normal interpersonal things that rub everyone the wrong way. So it turns out, at least if these relationships I've talked about are true, that the small things kind of are the big things. This is one thing I always think was so great about Seinfeld, the show, is they're always talking about really small things, but it's because small things are the big things in life. We all know how we feel about the president. What's much more confusing is why you will not pick up your socks. (laughs) To forgive another person... He says, is actually involves a renunciation of yourself. And that's why it's so difficult. This past week, uh, actually two days ago, in the Washington Post, Elizabeth Brunig, who's one of the best religious writers in the country, she was writing about the Roseanne Samantha B. thing. You, you guys all know about this. Roseanne did this horrific tweet, everyone got furious, she got fired. And then, like, two days later, and so all the conservatives are upset because Roseanne is there, maybe they're bullying her in some way. And then, uh, two days later, Samantha B says something outrageously offensive about Ivanka Trump. And, uh, all the conservatives are like, she now, like, let's go after her now. It's this cycle of vindictive provocation and re- reaction. And it doesn't matter what side you're on, it's like a playground, you know, it's like, boop, boop, you know, um, what she says about forgiveness, she says the, the thing that troubles her most about our cultural moment is that, uh, that the forgiveness does not at any point enter the logic of our uh, discussion. It's all about accountability, and it's all about uh, consequences. You, people can have consequences, and you still forgive them. Anyway... Um, This is what Bernick says. She she defines forgiveness. She says, forgiveness means having the technical right to exact some penalty, but electing not to pursue it. This breaks the cycle of retribution with unearned, undeserved mercy. And this is great. The face of forgiveness is bruised because it bears its own injuries with grace. The face of forgiveness is bruised. Now, this is what makes forgiveness so hard is that it requires a degree of um, to, to allow yourself to be bruised, to, to resist the temptation to hit back that is so reflexive in most of us. It's for me to say, even though you were a jerk, I'm not going to stay mad at you, because that's you, not me. That's a renunciation of self, and we hate renouncing ourselves. Um, this is the, so what I love, though, about what he's trying to say is that this kind of forgiveness, this renunciation of self, it's not just when someone has murdered your daughter. It's when someone has bad breath. <laughs> to renounce, renounce yourself is to remain quiet. Um, the focus on the mundane as opposed to the dramatic is really actually extraordinary. Because, I mean, think of your annoying brother-in-law. Think, think of that person in your life. What is it really about them that needs, you don't need to forgive something they've done. What do you need to forgive? Who they are. Who they are is what needs to be forgiven. And so the little things, in fact, are the big things. Because the little things say who you are is not, is the problem here. Not the stuff, little stuff you do. It's all coming from the same place, aka you. That's what I have a hard time forgiving. So that rings true. Now back to the baby bottle story. So Chris walks in, and he's had this wonderful greeting from his wife, uh, who's, you know, been totally through the ringer that day with the kids. We all know how it is. But she says, she said, Chris had a few facts of his own, and he rattled them off. Bathtub, bathroom sink, kitchen sink, grout, tile, microwave, cabinets, carpets, floors, windows, windowsills, stovetop, countertop, vacuum, vacuum filter. All the things he's cleaned for the last 12 years. Wiping, washing, scrubbing, scraping, rubbing, rinsing, dusting, disinfecting, all the chores he's done during the life of our relationship. And then he added the kicker. This is always great when you're in a fight to bring up things that have happened in the past. (laughs) Three months after he moved in with me, he made plans to move out. He had a line on an apartment and calls into moving companies for price estimates. He couldn't stand my haphazard existence, the way I never hung up my clothes or made the bed or opened my mail or ran an errand. He needed out, but he didn't get out. He sucked it up and dealt. Something happened for our friend Chris. For whatever reason, he stayed even though he had plenty of reason not to. Maybe it was a careful cost-benefit analysis, you know, but I sincerely doubt it. I suspect he stayed because he realized he actually loved her. And love is never tidy. (laughs) Love doesn't operate according to percentages. It doesn't. Someone I heard once said it it, it, it keeps no record of wrongs. Now, this being real life and not breakfast at Tiffany's, Chris related the story in a moment of defensive self-justification, right? He's being attacked, he enters combat mode, and he's, he's, he's got his arsenal ready. But that didn't prevent it from triggering a cascade of gratitude in his wife. The veil of judgment somehow dropped, the entitlement melted away, and Lynn caught a glimpse of how much she'd been loved at her least presentable in all of her mess, not apart from it. She confesses, all my life, i had been a scrounger. When I ran out of toothpaste, I'd use baking soda. When I ran out of toilet paper, I'd use tissues and then paper towels. Now these things were in the closet when I needed them. I could open the refrigerator at any moment and find a half gallon of milk. It was magic. <laughs> and what she calls magic, we call grace. Though grace is more than magic the deeply liberating reality of her belovedness in the midst of her non-glamorous weakness combined with her preternatural percentage-defying love for her little baby is what gave her at least the momentary fuel to give up her rights and to start loving in return her son, her husband, her life. For the time being, she experiences what we call freedom. She's nobody, but she's somebody's nobody. You see what I did there? (laughs) She's been brought low. She's been reminded of how small she is. But somehow we find that that's the place where love happens. You see, the ordinary is the laboratory of love. The law of self-fulfillment of percentages, scorekeeping, It has no end point. It brings us all low, or it makes us completely lonely. So no wonder we hear Jesus asking us to take the last place at the banquet, to be a servant, to be the littlest, the least, the last. But of course, that's impossible if and when our egos are being driven by neurotic and shame-based anxiety. Not to be ordinary. Because the reality of Good Friday is that if you become like Jesus, if you carry his cross, nobody will actually pay attention. No one will say thank you. There will be no likes. There will be no comments. No one will recognize your work. That's crucifixion of the ego, of the self, of all of our aspirations to be somebody. Christ wasn't impressed by power or accomplishment. And deep down, you actually aren't either. Christianity rips the mask off of the edifices we build uh, with those things. We find that God is not interested uh, in our strength, but in our weakness, meaning he's interested in us. In practice, this means that there's no hard, impermeable boundary between the mundane and the miraculous. One of the great passages in uh, Luke is when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter. Maybe you remember this. And he gets interrupted on the way and he gets there too late. The daughter's dead. He says, wake up. And this is, the, this is actually the two verses, yeah, verse uh, 54 and 55 from Luke 8. He's, he's, he shows up. Everyone's you know, beside themselves with grief. And they're like, where have you been? But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. That last part. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. The miraculous is not cordoned off from the mundane. It's one sentence than the next. Him raising the dead and saying she needs a sandwich. These things coexist. Oftentimes, the more mundane the mercy, the more miraculous uh, our experience of it is. I'll give you this final example, and I'm almost finished. Tennessee Williams has an amazing play, The Night of the Iguana. Have you guys ever, ever seen that? It was made in a movie um, that uh, I, I'm pretty sure it was Burt Lancaster's in it. And it's the story of a def- defrocked pastor named Lawrence Shannon who, after leaving the ministry, takes up giving bus tours through Mexico. On a trip he's leading with teachers from a Baptist college in Texas, he becomes romantically entangled with the young niece of the group's stern matriarch you get this picture here though he's innocent the matriarch in question decides to ruin his career as a tour guide in the process uncovering his past that he's been defrocked as a pastor shannon that's the man has a nervous breakdown which leads him to heavy drinking in order to save his job as a tour guide he hijacks the bus and this is Tennessee Williams, and steers it to a remote hotel on the coast where there are no phones. So it basically couldn't happen. Suspend your disbelief. Um, <laughs> there, in the midst of his despair, he meets a struggling artist named Hannah, who's played by Deborah Carr, the famous Scottish actress. and who She's there taking care of her aging grandfather, the most ordinary person alive. And yet, and yet, Hannah begins to nurse Shannon back into shape, counseling and caring for him as no one has before. But the real breakthrough comes one evening when Shannon and Hannah find themselves alone. Hannah removes a crumpled pack of cigarettes from her pocket. She discovers only two are left in the pack and decides to save them for later, putting them away. Shannon, I'm going to read you the actual dialogue here. This is him. May I have one of your cigarettes, Hannah? She offers him the pack. He takes it from her, crumples it up, and throws it off the veranda. Never smoke those. They're made out of tobacco from cigarette stubs that beggars pick off the sidewalks and out of the gutters in Mexico City. Have these, Benson and Hedges, imported in an airtight tin, my only luxury in life. Why, thank you. I will, since you've thrown mine away. Shannon responds, I'm going to tell you something about yourself. You are a lady, a real one and a great one. She asks, what have I done to, to merit that compliment from you? He says, it isn't a compliment. It's just a report on what I've noticed about you at a time when it's hard for me to notice anything outside myself. You took out those Mexican cigarettes. You found you just had two laughs. You can't afford to buy a new pack of even that cheap brand, so you put them away for later. But when I asked you for one, you offered it to me without a sign of reluctance. Aren't you making a big point out of a small matter? He responds, just the opposite, honey. I'm making a small point out of a very large matter. The world has beaten this man up. He's suffered the consequences of his actions. He suffered the justice of the world, as well as a lot of injustice. But it's this tiny act of mundane, ordinary mercy, which gives him hope. And in the process, maybe the beginning of being a bit more merciful to himself, let alone his relationship with the Almighty. Is the point here that I'm sending you away, seeking out small expressions of grace like that show. You know, have you seen that show about tiny houses? It's pretty addicting. It's like all those shows. This person's closet is their house, you know. And and it's you know, like, I think I could live there. <laughs> Am I saying we should just find that version of in our spiritual lives? You know, uh, become minimalists? Well, that wouldn't be bad, actually. Some of those houses are really cool. But... No, when the horizontal limits of forgiveness become painfully real, you and I may find we have nowhere to turn except to a God who forgives the unforgiving. You see, this is who Jesus Christ is. He is the miraculous entering into the mundane, the extraordinary made ordinary, a carpenter for Christ's sake. As he says about himself, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. What's more ordinary than a servant? And to give his life as a ransom for many. To justify the ungodly, as how Paul puts it other places. To make all those nobodies into somebodies. So the news here for you tonight is that he's not waiting. God is not waiting for you to kick your addiction to significance and self-justification. He is here to suffer the justice of the world and all the slings and arrows that a species hell bent on using every other person as a prop throws at him. He suffers that so that we might receive those streams of mercy never ceasing. This is the somebody who became nobody for the sake of everybody. The good news. That God does not value your extraordinary virtue. He values your weakness, which, as I said, means he values you. And he doesn't come to meet you with justice, but with Benson and Hedges. (laughs) Amen.